Welcome this morning. We're going to be reading from Luke 18, verse 31 to 43. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside just begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus' Nazareth is passing by. And he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw this, they also praised God. Good morning, Luke 18. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would unveil to us the things you desire for us to hear. And I pray, God, that they're not just words that we step out without any effect on us, but that they would transform our thinking. They would transform our hearts. They would transform the way we look at things and our perception of things. In Jesus' name, amen. Where was Jesus heading, uh, according to our text this morning? He's, he's heading to Jerusalem. And it was a time of Passover, so going to Jerusalem, it was actually nothing out of the ordinary for these guys. They've been going to Jerusalem for Passover for quite a while now. And so it was said that Jerusalem's population at this time was about 50,000 people. And... Some historians, uh, like Josephus, reported that the the city would swell to over 3 million people. Now, there are historians that report that 3 million is an inflated number and that that was closer to 150,000, but I don't see that as an entirely accurate number because this is the most celebrated feast for the Jew. And if there was a time to ever go to Jerusalem, it would be at this time. So it, it would be... Passover, that's when they would go. And Jerusalem's population today, if we went there now, without any festivities at all, is over 800,000. So 150,000 just doesn't seem all that accurate to me. And besides, Josephus is the man when you're talking about historians. Josephus recorded that the Syrian governor, Cestius Gallus, requested that the high priest would take a census of Jerusalem so that he could convince Caesar Nero of the importance of this city and of the Jewish nation. So for the governor to get this point across to Caesar, when do you think the governor would ask for the census to be taken? It would be at its peak. So during uh, Passover. Now how can you possibly take a census of millions of people coming into the city? Because they didn't make that clicker thing yet. So how do you do that? 
Well, you don't count the people. There's just too many of them. How are you possibly going to count all those people? And now you're thinking, how do you take a census if you don't count people? Well, what were the Jews going to Jerusalem to do? Sacrifice lambs. So the high priest instructed the number of lambs sacrificed during the Passover to be counted. A much more manageable thing. Right? All of the lambs had to be inspected. So you inspect it and like, yeah, this one's worthy to be sacrificed. Check it off. And they, they do that. So 256,500 lambs. And so after receiving this number, he multiplied the number of lambs by 10, the average number of persons served by each lamb. And now 10 people sharing a lamb was on the low end of the estimate. So you round that, and it's about 3 million. Now, if it was my family, I think one of my cousins and I, we could polish a lamb just between the two of us. Because we got big appetites, and any of you that have eaten with me, you know this to be true, that I like protein. And I don't mean to offend any of you vegetarians out there of my carnivorous ways, because that would be bad. (laughs) But can you imagine? Oakland has about 500,000 people. Imagine our city accommodating 30 million people. That's about the population of California. California is about 38 million people. So we have Oakland, and all of California's population is gathering here. That is a lot of lamb tacos, right? And, and we've got a lot of good taco trucks here. I, I got Guadalajara, Sinaloa, uh, Mirancho down there, or for those of you making fun of my accent, Mirancho, um, La Penca Azul. Like, I'm ready to eat right now. And so here we are, verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In two weeks, I have the privilege to take our interns to Israel, and we will be in Jerusalem in two weeks to begin our pilgrimage. So we're going to start our pilgrimage there, and we're going to end our pilgrimage there. And while our trip is this religious journey to a special place of significance to our faith, Jesus was venturing into Jerusalem for a unique purpose, and it wasn't for pilgrimage. He was heading to Jerusalem because he had a mission to accomplish. He had a destiny to fulfill, and the mission was to die on a cross, to be the sacrificial lamb for us once and for all. Here we have quarter million lambs dying for people's sins, and here Jesus is saying, I'm going to do it once and for all, and it's during Passover. In Mark's gospel, Mark recorded for us the emotions that those who were following Jesus were feeling as they were heading to Jerusalem. This is in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And you notice that Jesus took aside the twelve again. And Jesus often did this with his disciples because they often didn't get it. So he brought them over to the side to explain to them the things that they didn't understand once again. And Jesus goes on to tell them in Luke chapter 18, verses 32 through 34, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. 
Luke recorded for us back in verse 31. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So these guys, they knew about the Messiah. They knew what the old prophets had said. They knew what the old prophets had written about. And the Old Testament is clear about the Messiah and what would happen. So Jesus dying on the cross, that really shouldn't have been a surprise. Verses 32 and 33, those shouldn't be all that surprising that that would happen. The Old Testament Scriptures address this. So this shouldn't be a surprise. There are a ton of Old Testament prophecies in regards to the Messiah. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through every single one of them, but I do want to share a couple of them with you. The first one I want to share with you is found in Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, this is one of David's psalms, where David stated in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to any of you? Jesus on the cross, Mark chapter 15, verse 34, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, said the same thing. And you jump down to verses 14 through 17 in Psalm chapter 22, and it reads this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Anyone familiar with the Gospels? This sounds very familiar, does it not? Verses 14 and 15 are descriptions of the physical sufferings experienced during crucifixion. There's a medical doctor by the name of David Tarasaka who wrote about what happens physiologically and biologically to the body. And so he wrote about how Jesus suffered from severe hypovolemia from the blood loss. I am poured out like water. Verses 14 and 15 describe Jesus severely dehydrated state, his loss of strength. And when the cross was erected upright and just put into that stake where that hole was, there was a tremendous strain on the wrists and on the arms and the shoulders, resulting in dislocation of the shoulder and elbow joints. My bones are out of joint. The arms being held up outward and they held the rib cage in, in this fixed and inspiratory position, which made it difficult to exhale. It made it impossible to take a full breath the victim would only be able to take very shallow breaths shallowness of breathing causes small areas of the lungs to collapse decreased oxygen and increased carbon dioxide causes acidic conditions in the tissues dr terasaka goes on to write fluid builds up in the lungs the heart is stressed and eventually fails my heart is like wax it is melted within my breast See, Jesus was extremely weak, physically weak at this point. Not mentally, not spiritually, just physically weak. And he's severely dehydrated. And you remember Jesus saying, I thirst. He was first offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take that. Mark chapter 15, verse 23. After this, Jesus said, I thirst, and it's recorded for us in John chapter 19, verse 28. This is the second drink offered to Jesus. He drank that one. 
John chapter 19, verses 29 through 30. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop brand and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Psalm 22, verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, these drinks are interesting. That first drink, Jesus refused because that was a drugged wine. It was wine mixed with myrrh. He was not going to take that. The second drink, Jesus accepted. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I thirst. And this was wine vinegar, and it's significant. It's significant because John recorded for us that it was on a hyssop brand. Now, this hyssop is very important here. For the feast of the Passover, this hyssop, that was what was used to dip into lamb's blood and then you put it on the cross post of the doorway. It was a hyssop brand. So you remember that Jesus' crucifixion occurred during the feast of the Passover and during this feast, hyssop was used, as I said, for those doorposts for the Jews, Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. But this hyssop brand pointed to the blood of the lamb on that cross. And it was given to the Lamb of God. And He took that into Him, applied that to that wooden cross for the salvation of all mankind. Now this wine vinegar was a product of fermentation. It was made from grape juice and yeast. For those who are familiar with yeast, what is yeast a biblical symbol of? Sin. Jesus took this drink. It is symbolic of His taking the sins of the world in His body, which He indeed do. And He took that with the hyssop and it was laid on the cross and the blood is shown there and we are cleansed from our sins. Now back to Psalm 22. For the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. There were no bones broken. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That is all in John chapter 19. What is written in Psalm 22 was fulfilled in Jesus' death, and it's recorded for us in John chapter 19. Now, let's look at a second one. Found in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 7. Another prophecy about Jesus, about the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The writings of the prophet Isaiah were before the disciples, and they've heard this over and over and over again. 
Yet the disciples didn't get this even though they knew these scriptures and even though they've been to synagogue and even though they've been hanging out with Jesus for three years, they still didn't get it. And back to Luke chapter 18, Jesus is saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, many other scriptures as well. All of that will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. They still didn't understand. They couldn't understand because they were looking at triumph the way that the world looks at triumph, the way that the world looks at victory. The world does not look at a suffering servant to being triumphant, to being victorious. A king is supposed to rule. A king is not supposed to serve. So Jesus, the Messiah, a suffering servant, that that, that makes no sense. That, That can't be. How can the Savior of the world be treated like that? But this is one of the proofs that the resurrection is real. Because how else do you describe a bunch of nincompoops who don't get it, who run away, who didn't get what Jesus was all about all the way until his death they didn't get it. But afterwards they changed the world? They changed the world because they saw a resurrected Christ. They didn't get it all the way until that point. If that held true and he died on the cross, don't you think they would just die off with him? The movement would go nowhere. But when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and showed himself, it all made sense to them. And it wasn't until then that they understood, "I I get it. And then they changed the world. You look at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is talking about the two guys Jesus encountered on the Emmaus road. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? So in other words, Jesus comes up and says, what's up? Like, he's, like, he's like there. And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? Jesus. Jokester. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. He said he was coming back on the third day, and he's not here. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman has said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You still don't get it. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I get it now. Now I can change the world. And it wasn't until their eyes were opened that, that, that they recognized Jesus. And then stuff started making sense to them. In Luke chapter 18, they don't get it. It's not until Luke chapter 24 do they see. And then in Acts chapter 2, you see the evidence of that on the day of Pentecost. They really got it. right? They, they get it to the extent that they are changing the world. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Who was saying this? Peter. Wasn't Peter afraid of junior high girls? And this is the same Peter. And he's saying this. He's giving this theological dissertation. The same Peter that ran away from a girl. I don't know him. And bleepily bleep, cussing and all this kind of stuff. I don't know him. I don't know him. This is him. That God's plan of redemption through His Son Jesus was established so that Jesus would be the atoning sacrifices of our sins. Jesus wasn't here to be a good prophet, to be a good teacher, to be a revolutionary, even though he was all those things. Jesus came to earth to redeem us from our sins, to be the Savior of the world. When Jesus said, it is finished, what did he mean? He meant that the work of redemption is finished. It's done. And it's not until we see the crucified and resurrected Christ, we won't understand our atonement from sins. We won't see that it was in God's plans for us to be united with Him as His child. Jesus died to secure our salvation, which God the Father intended since eternity. It was the plan all along. Jesus died for this, And here we have the disciples who couldn't see, and then we enter into the story of a blind man. A physically blind man who could actually spiritually see better than his own disciples could. Verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now a blind beggar was an outcast of society back in this time, because this person was not self-sufficient. He was reliant on the alms of people. And perhaps he was led there by his family so he wouldn't be a burden on them. So he's plopped down in probably the same corner that he's been in for years and years. And the Jews believed that almsgiving to the poor was a good thing. That this is something that we should do. But that didn't mean that that guy was accepted. That that guy was accepted into their society. We'd give to him, but, you know, he must have done something wrong because he's blind. But that day he sent something different. That blind guy sensed something different, so he inquired about it. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This guy's declaration and title for Jesus is really insightful of him. 
because he was using a title reserved for the Messiah. Son of David was the messianic title for the Savior, and this blind man was was able to piece together everything that he had heard to come to this conclusion. All the stories he had heard, all the talk about things going on, and he cannot see a thing, but he can sure hear. Now, there was a study conducted last year by the Montreal Neurological Institute of Canada's McGill University. And if any of you know Canada's system of universities, McGill is their Harvard. And so they did this research on the sense of hearing in blind people. Now, we all know that we can trust Canadians. If you can't, then why do they always tell you, if you're in trouble and you're traveling abroad, just claim that you're Canadian? (laughs) Eh? I mean, how can you not trust people that have a maple leaf on their national flag? I mean, maple leaf. I mean, you get maple syrup from that thing, right? This is like sweet. So they found that blind people have a better pitch perception and they have a better position perception than those who have sight. And they found that those who were born blind were actually scoring higher than those who became blind later on in life. So here we have this blind man. He couldn't see, but he could sure hear. And he could probably hear better than most. And not only could he hear better, but he had a better position perception as well. So don't think like, oh, Jesus is coming, and then he's just like, pointing anywhere, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and Jesus is back here. No, he has a great perception of where Jesus is. He knows he's coming. He is shouting there. He is coming from there. I'm shouting to him. He couldn't see Jesus coming, but he had this positional perception, and he's shouting to him. And the interesting about it is that sight often prevents us from listening. Isn't that true? Because when you see something, you kind of close off the other senses, don't you? And God always works in these amazing things with sermons because I have an awesome sermon illustration that just happened last Monday. This past Monday, I went to the Oakland Zoo with my kids because they belong there. And so Monday is my day off. I take Mondays off. So my kindergartner had a field trip to the Oakland Zoo. And so I decided... I'll stop by. And so my wife was chaperoning, and I decided to bring my toddler over there to join them. And so we joined in on this zoo tour, and the zoo guide stopped at the bird sanctuary. Any of you familiar with the Oakland Zoo, that big bird sanctuary across from the lions? You haven't been? I invite you. Come with me. So it's across from the lion exhibit, and so the zoo guide, what he does is he said, All right, kids, all of you, close your eyes. Close your eyes, and I want you to focus on the different bird noises. Because if you don't, all you hear is... But close your eyes, and once you do that and you start listening to it, the sounds of the lovebirds are very different from the swallows. And the swallows are very different from the thrushes. And the thrushes are very different from the blackbirds. They are all different. There's like a dozen birds in there, and you can hear each distinct one. So we all closed our eyes... And I could hear the distinct sounds of each bird as he was describing which bird made which noise. And I could hear it. And sometimes we miss things we can hear because we are busy looking for something else. 
We're busy just looking when we need to be listening. And I think this guy was a really good listener. And I don't think it was just the time that Jesus was traveling through that he understood this and he pieced all this stuff together that Jesus was the son of David, but that he was a good listener for a really long time. I think he heard the stories about Jesus before he arrived in town because how else did he come up with calling him son of David? So he had some background as to who Jesus was. He, he heard these stories about Jesus before Jesus came to town. And he knew. I think he heard about Jesus when he taught in the synagogue. And he taught in the synagogue and he opened up the prophet Isaiah. He opened up the scroll and he claimed to be Messiah. And it's found in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as that guy heard, recovering of sight to the blind, I can just imagine him sitting there and the tears coming down his cheek. I need to meet him. I think he heard the story of Jesus' cousin John the Baptist who had these disciples and he sent the disciples to him because he was in jail and he sent the disciples to Jesus because he was confused. And this is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 20 through 22. John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And I think this blind man was hearing this, and a tear rolling down his cheek again. I need to meet Jesus. The blind receive their sight. And I think this blind man heard the stories like Jesus' proclamation in the synagogue in Nazareth, like the story about John's disciples' interaction with Jesus, and the ones like it where Jesus gave sight to the blind. So can you imagine the excitement of this blind guy when they said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming to town? What? Jesus! I've heard about you this whole time, and he's just like, I want to see! That's the guy who can help me see! I've heard about him. And through the stories he had heard, he pieced together all these stories. Jesus has to be the Messiah. I know Isaiah 53. That's him. I know Psalm 22. That's him. I know everything since Moses to this point. I know he's it. That is the son of David. And so this blind man is the epitome of one who has been marginalized and who has been helpless and just thrown to the side and forgotten about. Because they didn't have services like we have today. There's no braille. There's no seeing eye dog. There's no walking stick. There's no services for blind people back then. The service back then, where's a busy street? Put them there. Then a lot of people can pass by and give them some alms and stuff like that. Put them there. That's what we can do. Go on, buddy. Go ask for it. 
start shaking that little can and making some clinking noises and start alms to the poor and start yelling stuff like that. Have some people have some sympathy on you. You know, work it up a little bit. Don't bathe, you know. Wear some dirty clothes and look the part so you get more money. So there he was, and he's just off to the side, and that's the best that he could do. And every day, drop him off on that same corner. Drop him off on that same spot so that people could give him some change so that he could buy some food and he's not a burden to his family. And you know what? Tomorrow we'll do the same thing again. We'll put you there and you can sit there and and then the following day we'll do that again. But this is how you're going to survive. You're going to live this way. So day after day after day after day, there, there, asking for alms. Not this day. Jesus is coming. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to beg anymore. I can have dignity today. Jesus is coming through, and if He is within an earshot of me, He is going to hear me. Things are different. I'm not letting this opportunity go by. And when Jesus comes within an earshot of me, I'm going to cry out to him like I've never done before because I recognize my sorry state that I don't want to be here anymore and I recognize who he is. And what did he cry out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. What? Do you read what happened? Those who were in front of him, who I imagine in front of him is probably his disciples. Right? Clearing the way, making room. Jesus coming through, Jesus coming. They try to keep him down? His own followers? I mean, you talk about not getting it. And they kept to their thinking that this guy was worthless. That this guy, he's an outcast. He's a nobody. Be quiet. Just keep your begging. Just be quiet. We can't waste time with you. Right? There's better things for Jesus to do than to hang out with you. You have nothing to offer Jesus. You have nothing to offer our ministry. You are blind. You're worthless. You're just a drain on society on the corner asking for money. Aren't we all? Isn't that all of us? Because really, what can we offer God? What can we offer Jesus who has everything? Isn't this all of us? Aren't all of us in the scope of who God is, omnipresent, omniscient? What can we possibly offer a God like that? How many of us believe that we are more than we really are? We believe that we're more than a blind beggar. And the blind man didn't think he was all that. He knew that he needed Jesus. And when those in front of him rebuked him and told them to be quiet, what did he do? He cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is my chance. You don't understand what I've been through my entire life, just begging here, no dignity, and I'm counting on it. He's coming through, and I'm grabbing onto him. I don't care what anybody says. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. How many of us are actually obstacles to people coming to Jesus rather than helping them Get to Jesus. How many of us are rebuking people and telling them, be quiet, rather than bringing them to Jesus? Churches sometimes do this. Sometimes we come up with a list of things. Oh, you smoke? You, you drink? 
You're sleeping with your girlfriend? You, you got to stop all that stuff before you come. Really? Really? Isn't that why you come? I mean, isn't that? Uh, you're blind. Get your sight before you go to Jesus. What? I mean, that's why you go. So we have to be sensitive to who Jesus stops for. That we are bringing to Him those He desires to stop for. Jesus comes for those that we so easily pass by. We just walk right by Him. People on the street doing some shady stuff. People in the parking lot doing some sketchy stuff. Like, ooh, that one's not a good candidate for Christianity. Yes, it is. That's a perfect one. That's the one Jesus stopped for. Jesus comes for those that we actually want to move away from. He comes for those that we want to get further away from. Like, oh, get kids, don't look at that one. He likes that one. And Jesus came for the least. He came for the last. He came for the marginalized. He didn't come eyeing for the corporate hotshot. He didn't come with a supermodel in mind. He didn't come for the technological genius. And it's not because that they don't have an invitation. It's that those who are broken actually realize they, they need a Savior. They see that. And those who have it all in terms of their earthly goods, whether it's intellect or money or, or looks or whatever, they tend to rely on themselves. I'm not going to make a blanket statement and say all of them do, but I think a lot of them tend to rely on themselves. So they rely on their wealth. They rely on their looks. They rely upon their intellect. They rely upon their education. They rely upon themselves. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. He knew exactly what he wanted. Exactly. There's no small talk here. Oh, Jesus, uh, nice to meet you. Good journey? Thirsty? There are no introductions. Jesus, Lord, Son of David, God Almighty, uh, Son of Man, uh, Lamb of God, all these titles that we do. Have you ever noticed people that pray sometimes, they give Jesus like five titles before they ask anything? Lord, God, Savior, Mighty One, uh, Holy God, and all this stuff. Here are prayers. Like It's just it's weird to me. How about Lord? That's it. Lord, let me recover my sight. No discussions, no nothing. Lord, let me recover my sight. He knew exactly what he needed. All those years when he was piecing all those things together, like all these stories, that's, that's it. He's the son of David. All those years, he knew in his head, and you get the sense that this guy's been praying a long time, if I ever get the chance to meet Jesus, I'm asking for this. There's no doubt. I, I, I know what I want. Do you know what you need from Jesus? Is your prayer life like that? Is what you hear from the Word of God and how you piece things together, is it that clear what you need from Jesus? So that on that encounter that you meet Him in such a real way, you know what to ask. If you are spiritually blind, you need spiritual sight. If you do not know Jesus this morning, you need Him. That's what you need. And if you don't know that, you'll remain blind. You won't be able to see that. The Bible shows that we are in bondage to sin. What do you need? Freedom from sin. How are you set free? 
through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible shows us that we are lawbreakers. What do we need? A way for our offenses to be paid. What's the payment? Your life or Jesus? There is no other acceptable restitution. Your life or Jesus? But do you see that you need Jesus? Verses 42 and 43, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. From the guy who was rebuked, and he was told to be quiet, to a guy glorifying God, and what else? He's the catalyst for others praising God. He's like leading the charge now. That's pretty awesome. Now, if you were the guys in the front who were there like, be quiet. Jesus is coming. How would you feel right about now? Yeah, I knew it all along. Jesus is going to come by and heal this guy. Yeah, I knew it. No, you'd be feeling pretty low right here. Like, oh man, I messed up. And you thought you were doing a service to God, but you were actually a hindrance. Let's be careful how we treat people. Let's be careful how we kind of look at people and and plug them in and pigeonhole them into different things. Do you know what this blind man brought to Jesus? His need. That's all he had. And sometimes we look at people as to what they can offer God or what they can offer our church or what they can offer us. And we look for the people that look good and smell good and have a lot of resources and have a big family or like all these different things that we look for in a church. Oh, yeah, that's how we're going to grow a church. If we get more of these people, if we grow, oh, we need to get the hipsters in because, you know, the hipsters are cool and, and they'll do all this kind of stuff. Oh, we need to get people with more families in here because we build with families and all this kind of stuff. And yet we're walking by who? The homeless, the refugees people that were thinking that, you know, they can't really offer us that much because they don't have that many financial resources or they don't know our language too well or, or all this kind of stuff. And we're thinking, we're just like walking by. And then when Jesus does something with them, we're like, oh yeah, we knew all along. No, you didn't. You just passed them by. I think he wants us to look for needs. What do people need? Not what can they offer us, not what can they offer our church, or what can they offer our community, or what can they offer us. We need to look at what their needs are, and we fill those needs. May we be a church on the lookout for people's needs. And it's the same way we approach Jesus. We come to Him with our needs, knowing that He provides whatever our needs are. So we're not looking for what we can give Him, The blind man came in weakness and he leaves empowered. He came in in his blindness and he receives sight. How do we approach Jesus? Are we approaching him in humble need? Are we saying, hey Jesus, you know what? You've blessed me so much with these things and I want to come and give those things. And I want to offer those things. How are you going to use me? Because, you know, I'm all that. I'm smart and I'm a mover and shaker and I can mobilize people and I can start small groups and I can do all this stuff. I think Jesus would be like, you really think that I need that? I'm God. You need something, not me. What do you need? 
Now, something that is really profound to me in this passage, and really humbling actually, is how Jesus deals with people in these extremely stressful circumstances. Because think about this. Where was Jesus heading? Jerusalem. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Now, what's going to happen to him there? For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He knows this. He knows he is walking into this. Jesus was on his way to be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed. Yet what does he do? He stopped to minister to a blind man. How humbling is this? Because I get bent out of shape when people are interrupting my sermon at a cafe. The most difficult time to minister to someone is when we're stressed, when we're preoccupied with something. The circumstances of your life make other things inconvenient for you. So you have health issues. You have marital problems. You have financial difficulties. You have difficulties at work. Whatever it is that is demanding of you is causing you to pass people by, to pass ministry opportunities by, to pass the blind man by. You know, we have to be really careful about being self-absorbed because here we have Jesus Christ on His way to the cross to take the sins of the world upon Himself who stopped for a man crying out to Him. He wasn't going along like, oh man, I'm going to the cross. I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. All right, I'm getting ready. Jesus, Son of David, be quiet. Don't you know what I have to do? I'm going to the cross. I don't have time. for. You've been like that all year long. It's no different. I'm going to the cross. You think you have problems? Do you know that I am God? And, And these people who I can wipe out like this by calling one angel and wiping them out, they're going to mock me. And they're going to spit on me. And they're going to beat me. And they're going to murder me. You think you got problems, kid? Sit down. Jesus does not do that at all. He didn't do that at all. Jesus heard him. He stopped for him. He listened to his requests. And Jesus saved him. Jesus gave him his dignity. See, Jesus still does that. Jesus hears. Jesus still stops. Jesus still listens. Jesus still saves. Even in all the atrocities of the world and everything that is going on wrong about our world. And there's a time clock of things coming where Jesus Christ is going to come back and redeem everything. But in that time span, He still hears. He still stops. He still listens. And He still saves. The question is whether you understand your own blindness. What is keeping you blind and in darkness? What will bring you to humbly ask of God your need? The prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2 verse 32 wrote, 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you call on the name of the Lord if you don't know Jesus this morning? Jesus coming to this blind man was his one occasion where Jesus passed by and he knew about him all along and he was a man in need. He knew it and he cried out to him when he knew Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. How many times has Jesus come by for you? For you, it might be multiple times. For you, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. What if this was the last opportunity that you had for Jesus to come by you because none of us knows when we're going to die. What if this was the last time? And if you are hearing His voice right now, do not harden your heart towards Him. This might be it. That blind guy, that was it because Jesus was going to the cross. That was it. What you're looking for in Jesus through your eyesight, that may be the very thing that is preventing you from hearing Him. I need to see a sign. I need to see miracles happen. I, I, I need to see God in the flesh. I need to see something. That may be the very thing holding you back. Because maybe it's time to stop looking for that sign you're looking for. Maybe it's time to close your eyes. Close your eyes and to start listening to Jesus. You'll hear Him. If you have faith and if you believe, you will hear Him. I guarantee you. And once you have faith to believe, you will be able to see. Believe. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 17, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. We're in front of the sanctuary. It's time to close our eyes. It's time to hear Jesus speak to us. Let's pray. Father, our blindness can often keep us from you. May we recognize it. I ask God that we would be able to recognize our needs and come before you with them. God, thank you so much for your mercy. Son of David, have mercy on us. And I pray for your blessing upon all the people here, Lord, and for your mercies to abound. In Jesus' name, amen.